Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to another installment of History Hat. It's Ancient History Day today and I'm really, I know nothing about this. And I purposely haven't read the book because I want to hear the story as it comes out. Um, I've got, I've had it sitting next to me for a week and a half and I've been dying to get into it. And I've been like, no, because then it won't be a surprise mm. on the podcast. Merrin, who's with us? Uh, so Alex, today we have Dr. Simon Elliott, who is an award-winning, best-selling archaeologist, historian, broadcaster, PhD, honorary fellow with the University of Kent. And he's come to talk to us about missing legions and I like you have some preconceived ideas about the Romans so what I'm hoping Simon is that you're going to put us straight absolutely firstly Mary could you do my PR for me please that was brilliant (laughs) (laughs) it's what she does for a living so it's expensive though (laughs) so come on tell us where where if we know nothing if we've got some some preconceived ideas we've watched Gladiator we've seen Russell Crowe we've watched Monty Python 17 million times and that's the extent of it where do we start and where where do we look for these missing legions? Well, you, <laughs> in terms of cultural reference points, you've already cracked it. Yeah. <laughs> and the only, the only one that you're missing, actually, this is a beautifully elegant way of segueing into it, uh, is, is, um, is, a, is a children's fiction novel called uh, The Eagle of the Night, written by a wonderful historian uh, in the 1950s called uh, Rosemary Sutcliffe. Rosemary Sutcliffe came up with this idea based on a historical data set, which was quite sort of popular in the day, that in Britain, at some stage, probably in the second century uh, AD, early, uh, a, a whole Roman legion disappeared. So it's it's almost like a Doctor Who episode, which randomly later did become a Doctor Who episode. <laughs> oh, brilliant. Can we start, just, can we just wind it back for the non-ancient historians in the room, the virtual yeah. room, um, what is a Roman legion? This is a big formation of travelling soldiers, right? I think my um, ancestors were up at Hadrian's Wall, our surname and all our family history all ties in with it. Um, so do they all come from Rome or do they collect soldiers from other places? What is a Roman legion? Well, let's start off very briefly with the Roman Empire. So the Roman Empire, we're talking about the first, second century AD when it's at its height. Um, so it's effectively uh, an area of control, imperial control from Rome, uh, which goes all the way from uh, the sort of modern Syria through North Africa up to Britain and then along the Rhine and the Danube uh, and through Asia Minor and back to Syria again. That's the Roman Empire. Within that, you have Britain as being the sort of the wild west of the Roman Empire at the northwestern tip of it, across terrifying Oceanus, as they would have called the English Channel, sort of a mysterious land which they found very difficult to invade in the first place. Uh, and the, the, the method of conquering and then controlling this vast territory in the pre-modern world for the Romans was the the Roman military and the elite warriors in the Roman military and indeed the wider ancient world uh, is the Roman legionary. This is a this is a uh, an infantryman who uh, is fully clad in armor with a huge shield. He's got 
very sophisticated javelins which have got a lead weight in them and the lead weight means it can punch through armor uh, and he's got a sword which is called the gladius which is a terrifying psychological weapon because the gladius most people think of it's like a short sword or something it's got something missing on it it's got no no blood runnels in it which are the grooves on a sword which allow it's quite gruesome which allow the blood to flow out and the air to flow in when you stab someone with it. So without that, to remove the weapon once it goes in, you need to give it a massive twist. So it gives a huge wound. So it's a psychological weapon. If you want to get inside the Roman mindset, that's all you need to know. They nicked the idea off the Spanish. It's called the Gladius Hispaniensis, the sword. And uh, they used it for the next three or 400 years. Any year of which they could have chosen to put these blood runnels in, they didn't. They just liked the fact it could scare people. That should give you the mindset of the Roman legionary uh, a roman legion numbers about 5500 of these legionaries and at any one time the romans had about 30 of them so what we have here is a 30th of the entire roman military establishment and within that these are the elite troops within the establishment so like the sas of the day disappearing overnight 5500 men dropping off the historical record entirely there is no other roman legion which disappears entirely there are very few if any other military formations in history world history which disappear entirely and so you have this amazing story that that um antiquarians effectively in the 18th century came across because they were trying to get to grips with the story of Roman Britain and one of them called John Horsley uh, writing a huge tomb which was a history of Roman Britain and about the 1730s remember um, found this was the only legion that he couldn't work out the date left or the date it left and later in the 19th century some german historians especially one called theodore monson came up with a theory that this legion didn't leave britain at all but it was wiped out and what we do know is this this was the legion one of three in britain which resided in york so nearly all roman towns and cities nearly, sorry nearly all towns and cities in modern britain were originally roman forts or fortresses and the ninth legion which is the one we're talking about um legio 9 hispana um founded lincoln later founded york then was based in york where it held the line of the northern frontier because remember the romans never fully conquered uh, the far north of britain what we call uh, modern scotland and then it disappears so uh, this guy the german guy theodore monson in the 19th century came up with a theory that it, it had been overwhelmed by a rebellion in the far north of britain so think of the Boudican rebellion ad 6061 had 60 years his idea was that in the north of britain rather than east anglia around york this legion was overwhelmed and the local tribe are called the brigantes so he came up with a theory that it was the brigantes who'd overwhelmed the legion in its legionary fort there's only one issue with that though uh, alex there's no evidence for it and no. that's the oh mary was i was going to jump in there because when you when you say that they're missing, I mean my my knowledge of um, like Roman towns goes as far as St Albans, Verulamium, because I love the word. But we we know quite a <laughs> bit about about the buildings we had. We can still scrape away the turf and find the mosaic tiles, and we know quite a bit about the the life they led. I think that's been passed down. What evidence do we start off with to understand the legions that were here, the the actual men that were here? Because we're not talking about a big book with names in it, are we? Uh, well, there are, there are in, in actual fact, you can tell from 
the the period of the empire we're talking about is called the principate where the emperor's called the principus the the first among equals which is clearly a conceit because the guy's a dictator but nevertheless <laughs> let's give him let's give him credit for hoodwinking his entire empire yeah give him the benefit of the doubt um in this principate phase of empire we've got quite a few very good historians actually for ancient historians and so we can cross-reference these and you also use things like epigraphy inscriptions monuments to show fairly accurately where various legions were at any one time and so almost certainly we know very accurately i think very accurately where which which legions were in britain so at this time the period we're talking about mary is we're talking about the late first early second century and at that time there was three legions in britain four had invaded in ad 43 three were now left and we know who they were there was legio 2 augusta in caerleon in southeast wales there was legio 20 valeria victrix in chester both legionary fortresses and then another legionary fortress in york you had legio 9 hispana so that's pretty accurate and we also have some great dates as well marion for what the legion was doing in britain we know it invaded britain in ad 43 we know it's a history to that point when largely it was an elite legion it had fought very well it fought throughout the very long sanguinous campaigns of roman conquest in britain remember caesar conquered gaul in eight years that's because he killed half the people and enslaved the other half in britain it took them over 60 years to get to the line of what later became hadrian's wall so they never really conquered britain anyway yeah which was one of the reasons why Britain is a place of difference in the Roman Empire throughout the whole occupation. But in this period, you have three legions. Um, so Theodore Monson's idea was that the legion in York was overwhelmed. So the dates that we have that are relevant to this story, which are historical facts, okay? The last time the legions mentioned in history is in AD 82, and it's by a historian called Tacitus writing about his father-in-law, so this is going to be uh, this is going to be not PR at all, is it? Uh, who's called Agricola, and he was trying to conquer the region of modern Scotland. Probably came closer than any other Roman to doing so, in actual fact. Uh, and in this reference in AD eighty two, it's very interesting. You have the legion, the ninth legion, the five thousand five hundred men, fighting in probably the lowlands of modern Scotland, so north of the border of the province, into this unconquered part. Uh, and they build a marching camp on this evening when they're in the north. And the Roman military always build marching camps at the end of every day's march in enemy territory. It's standard practice. And on this occasion, it works because the native Britons of the far north try and overwhelm them in a night attack. And they almost succeed. And then Tacitus says that his father-in-law, Agricola, saves the day, turns up with his guards and that kind of thing. So that's the last time it's ever mentioned in history. It's last mentioned in epigraphy. That's an inscription uh, in AD 108. And that's in York. And it's on the southeastern gateway where the legion erects the gateway out of stone uh, as part of a rebuild. And then they inscribe above it, the Ninth Legion was here. We did it. In the, re- in the, in the reign of the Emperor Trajan, the Ninth Legion was here. That's the last time it's ever mentioned. Right. In AD 122, the Emperor Hadrian comes to Britain bringing a new governor and a new legion, Legio VI Victrix, and this one gets installed in York. So by that point, there's only room for one legion in a legionary fortress, so the Ninth Legion's gone in by AD 122. And finally, in terms of contemporary references, Hadrian's Wall is built from 122, takes three or four years. Every unit in Roman Britain takes part in the process, Every military unit leaves an inscription. Even the Roman Navy 
leaves an inscription saying we was here, but the Ninth Legion doesn't. So there are four key dates for you in Britain. One, AD 82, uh, its last mentioned in history. AD 108, last mentioned in, in epigraphy. AD 122, uh, a new legion replaces it in York, so it's not there anymore. From AD 122, every unit in Roman Britain inscribes Hadrian's Wall saying they helped build it. The Ninth Legion doesn't, so it almost certainly isn't here. Right. Let's tell the story of this legion as best we can then with what you found. So start us off with when is this legion founded? Because we, we do know that it predates the Roman conquest of Britain, don't we? Absolutely. In actual fact, it's very confusing for, because there are two Ninth Legions, <laughs> obviously. Uh, the first Ninth Legion was founded uh, probably uh, in the um, early first century BC civil wars between the Optimates and the Populares in Rome um, and fought uh, for Sulla, uh, one of the first great dictators of, of Rome uh, in the social war uh, against the revolting Italian allies that the Romans were fighting. Uh, so that's probably around AD 85, AD 8, uh, sorry, 80 to 80, 85 BC, 80 BC, runs through to the time of Caesar when this Ninth Legion fights through all of his major campaigns in Gaul, all of his major campaigns against the uh, Pompeians in uh, Greece and Macedonia, in North Africa and in Spain. And then the year before Caesar gets assassinated in 44 BC, it's disbanded. Bizarrely, <laughs> bizarrely, a year later it's reformed. <laughs> this is worse than trying to keep track of the Fourth Army and whether the Fifth Army is German or American or, or British in the Second World War. It's, it's, it's equally confusing. The bizarre thing here, though, Marin, is it looks to me as though it wasn't reformed from the same troops because it was reformed by Octavian later or Augustus, the first emperor from 27 BC, but it's reformed um, to fight a campaign against Pompeians who are still revolting in Sicily. So it's, it's a way away from where it was almost certainly disbanded, which was probably Northern Italy. So it's probably veterans from a variety of reasons, legions who got dragged together in an emergency. But then of course you end up with the cycle of the final stages of the civil wars in the Roman Republic and the legion stays in existence and it's still in existence when Augustus is named emperor, the first emperor by the Senate in 27 BC. And it's such a fine legion that he personally takes it along with the rest of his army to conquer the far north of Spain in the Cantabrian Wars, which is very difficult to conquer. Uh, and then gets sent to the, the, the Danubian frontier. And it actually rebels, intriguingly, because it has to occupy one legionary fortress with two of the legions that he doesn't like it. Obviously, sharing barrack rooms didn't, didn't yeah. agree with the Roman legionaries. So, so it rebels and uh, it has a decimation um, carried out against it. Probably about AD 10, this is. Um, uh, and that means that one legionary in 10 was beaten to death by the other legionaries in the, in the legion. That's mean. I mean, I don't really? like people who, who, who use the word decimated and get it wrong because everybody says decimated. And what they're trying to infer is, oh, completely wiped out. And what it is, is one in 10. So, but, but you're saying that one in 10 actually was just, ooh. Beaten to death by their comrades. That's the whole idea. The, the idea is that it's, that it's the most extreme punishment except crucifixion that you can give a Roman legionary. Uh, because basically the, the other nine out of the 10 get given a cudgel and the, the other guy on the floor gets beaten to death and that's it. Um, Do we know what the, the, the system was for choosing that 10th man? No, but <laughs> but they wish they did. Yeah. <laughs> that's insanity. Um, 
Wow. It's a good point to remember, though, isn't it? It's a very good point to remember, actually, because yeah. uh, when you won't, I, I, when I'm talking about any peoples of the past in any phase of history, I always say peoples of the past are like but different and in terms of the romans certainly one of the main ways in which they were very different from us is this attitude to casual violence which is very normal for them but it's very jarring for us so you think of something like the roman arena the Colosseum. i've heard it said i don't know if this is true more people died in that particular space uh that that area mm-hmm. space in the Colosseum arena than anywhere on earth apart from hiroshima and nagasaki i don't know if that's true but it certainly draw, brings the point home that, that was a very normal part of their life. Um, but Even it works in... Elodie Harper this week as well. And another thing that just jars us is Romans and ownership of your own body and not having it and other people having ownership of you and being able to do whatever they want with you. And take it a step further, if you are in the Roman military, uh, so, so, so if you're looking at military history, if you're in the official military or in the army or whatever, you are other than society, legally, etc. You're expected to do things which you would not do in the normal normal run of, of, of uh, daily civilian life. In the ancient world, that's even more so. So the Roman military are not only other, they're, they're very, very much other than the rest of society. But for the Ninth Legion, this works because they, they get back to fighting strength. They then are fortunate because the governor of the region there on the Danube, it's called Pannonia, modern Romania, um, the governor is, um, the governor is, or it's near modern Romania. The governor is called Aulus Plautius and Aulus Plautius, um, uh, is, uh, chosen by the ill-favored Emperor Claudius, who needs a very big political win to cement the fact that this most unlikely of emperors has become the emperor. He gets chosen to lead the invasion of Britain. And again, you know, this is, um, I, I know you've spoken to Sean, Sean Bean in the past, for example. Well, let's look at Sean Bean's role in Game of Thrones. This is more Game of Thrones than Game of Thrones or more Tolkien than Tolkien for the Romans invading Britain because yeah. it's an island of which they know nothing. It's completely mysterious. It's terrifying. Um, Augustus tried himself three times and failed. The, 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 the mad Caligula tried and failed. Claudius almost fails himself because it takes one of his own freed slaves to shame the legionaries to get on the ships to invade Britain. Caesar earlier invaded Britain twice and never stayed overnight, even though he'd have you believe that he conquered Britain. Great PR man, Julius Caesar, the greatest PR man in the ancient world, but he didn't. So this is ill-favoured Claudius choosing his elite soldier, Aulus Plautius, to invade Britain, who takes four legions, including his own legion, the Ninth Legion. So the Ninth Legion, when it invades Britain with Aulus Plautius, is actually one of the, if not the best legion in the Roman um, Roman sort of like list of list of legions, and it plays a full part in every campaign of conquest in Britain, and it's involved fighting all the way through from that point to the time it disappears. There's only one thing I've mentioned I've not mentioned so far in that period in Britain because I've talked about Lincoln, I've talked about York, um, I did mention Boudicca in the context of an analogy when we're talking about what might have happened to the ninth in York. Well, the ninth legion was involved trying to fight the Boudican revolt. But again, here's the really interesting thing. It's a failure. So this is the Boudican revolt kicks off in the north of North Norfolk with the Iceni tribe. Um, the conflagration, the rebellion spreads throughout the southeast, goes all the way down through to Colchester, which the Roman, the, the, the Boudican rebels torch, and then later tortures um, London, and later we've spoken about St. Albans, which um, the, 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 the revolt also tortures. Well, just after Colchester is torched, uh, units from the Ninth Legion 
we'll call the, the Romans call them vexillations. It's like sort of a large company or a small regiment, hot foot it down from Lincoln and intercept the Boudican uh, uh, revolting force, as it were, and are wiped out to a man. So the first Roman attempt to stop Boudicca is a total failure. It's such a failure that the general in charge of the legion, it's called a legate, uh, is a guy called Cerealis, who bizarrely later becomes a leading governor in Britain, but at this time he's not, he's only a general. He runs away. He actually runs away and leaves the legionaries to be slaughtered and spends the rest of the Boudican revolt hiding in a local fort and doesn't come out until Boudicca is finally defeated by the then governor, um, Paulinus. No, I'm smiling for two reasons. The first of which is that, that one of the classic memes that Sean's known for is one does not simply walk into Mordor. And this does feel a bit like one does not simply walk in and conquer Great Britain. No, 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 no. The second thing is, as I sit here looking at, at the North Sea on the north coast of North Norfolk, I feel like I've found my tribe. <laughs> well, well, I, well, you know, in actual fact, there's some amazing places to, to go there, as you know. Like, yeah. I mean, I, I love going to places like Ben Sonora, and I'll just bear in mind the Ninth Legion was there. So this legion, which disappears, was there. The only reason why the Romans didn't originally totally conquer the region of the, 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 tri- the Iceni tribe in North Norfolk was because they were, they were a Roman client state. So when the Romans were trying to conquer a territory, they did it as quickly as possible and only wasted resources in med- terms of men and money uh, fighting people who would um, fighting people who wanted to try and stop them. If they wanted to do a deal, they'd bypass them. So the, the whole of North Norfolk was originally bypassed. But later when the King of North Norfolk died, this is the husband of Boudicca, Instead of leaving, as he should have done, in his will, his territory to the Emperor Nero, he left the territory to the Emperor Nero and his daughters. And it's the and his daughters bit, which is the starting point of the Boudican Revolt, because the Romans then are too heavy-handed. However, you read the historical sources, uh, which includes the rape of uh, Boudicca's daughters and, and, and her being abused. Um, and then you have this huge conflagration taking place. Now, now, now the Ninth Legion played a full role in all of that. Um, and it was there all the way through the Roman occupation of Britain. That's so. So you, what you've got there almost sets out for you why it's so amazing and astonishing that we don't know what happened to it. Because I've given you quite a detailed history there uh, in the space of what fifteen or twenty minutes, where I've said everything that major that it did. Let's wind it in a bit then. So you've told us uh, we are in a minute. We're going to move on to the different hypotheses of what happened to it. But before you do that, we've talked about what it did and where it came from. Can you just tell us what they looked like? What do these men look like? How are they armed? If you were the Iceni and you walked around the corner and you saw a couple of Roman legionaries on a road to North Norfolk, what would they look like? You know what? That's a brilliant question. Really brilliant question especially because it lets me wax lyrical. So if you were to think about a Roman legion of this phase, someone like me, a 55-year-old, grew up with things like Ladybird books. The front cover of every every book about the Romans would have a Roman legionary dressed in his full kit. So he's got on his head this huge uh, iron helmet called uh, uh, an imperial Gallic helmet, which has got massive cheek protections, got huge protection across the back of the neck. It's got a guard across the brow, it's got a nasal guard. It's just basically, it's as good as you'll get in the 15th or 16th century. And then he's got an amazing sort of um, uh, hobok, uh, sort of suit of armour as well, called a piece, uh, it's called Loricus Segmentata, which is like banded iron hoops, which gives you a great protection but flexibility. So it's almost like a robot. 
Uh, and then he's got the Gladius I mentioned earlier, and he's got the Pilums I mentioned earlier. He's got the Scutum Shield. So basically, he, he, he's going to look terrifying to an opponent. And, and his, his preferred method of fighting is as a fencer. Uh, and he's got a very specific bespoke way of fighting. So what the Roman legionaries were trained to do was to first take the blow from your opponents on your shield. So not go haywire, but in a very measured way, allow your opponent to strike first. And you catch the blow on this massive body shield and then raise the opponent's guard and then stab upwards into the midriff with the, with the gladius and give it this big twist, gutting them and then pulling it out. Um, so that's what that's what will be going through the mind of any sort of like ancient Briton, as it were, uh, a Britonic speaker who saw a sort of a Roman legionary come around the corner. Physically, what did they look like? All Roman legionaries, the, all 5,500 in the legion weren't just fighting men, but they were also trained engineers. So remember, we're talking about a period when there's no civil service, there's no... Um, nationalized industry as it were there's no free market to raise capital to make big public buildings so therefore the state has to turn to the only means it can to do stuff like build things and that's the military so whenever you see a Roman aqueduct uh, a theater an amphitheater a road uh, a, a temple a basilica and forum they're all built by Roman legionaries and Roman soldiers um, and to do that the Roman legionary on the march carried his entire kit with him so his military kit and his engineering kit on his body. So they were built like, I would argue, in fact, before telling you what I think they looked like, they had a nickname. They were called, after the great Roman um, reforming military consul Marius, they were called Marius's mules. And I think if you saw one today, they would look like a middleweight Olympic weightlifter, Yay. basically square and solid muscle. And weight. 
that was on policing duties really uh so so you had good life expectancy there if you thought if you found yourself fighting the persians on the eastern frontier or in the jewish revolts in judea or fighting on the in the far north of britain then your life expectancy was dramatically less so it's sort of quite random but again I'm just actually wondering like if you survived like, all of it and lived you did your 25 years service don't know how old they were when they went in how much of a life have you got after that like what that's hardly any retirement like you say it's gone up from six years to 25 years it's pretty much a life sentence isn't it i think i think you're probably looking at sort of a decent a decent a decent well the, i think the, the the average life expectancy in the roman empire would have been about 33 years right but that takes into account a lot of things including very high infant mortality um and also pandemics very topically and things like that yeah. But but normally you could expect a legionary if he survived the predations of, of of a life in the on the front line to live through to I don't know sixty sixty five something like that. Okay. So so if you're retiring, you're going at eighteen seventeen eight. It's not that different to today, to be honest. You're going at seventeen or eighteen, looking to retire in your early to mid forties. Yeah. And then you know you'd have a good pension. You'd be given a plot of land if it was an agricultural region. If you were living near a town, you could have actually, the, the Romans had specific towns called Colonia, which were actually settlements for veterans. So Colchester, uh, to the south of you, Marion, that's well, far to the south of you, that's going to be, uh, that, that was a Colonia. That was originally a settlement for veterans from the uh, Roman campaigns and, and of Britain. Uh, do, we, do we have lots of incidents where, not talking about defecting or, or, or running away, but where these legionnaires decided they wanted to set up families with Britons? They all, that's absolutely endemic. I mean, human nature is human nature wherever you go. So, so we, we have a specific word which you will know for, um, when you have a Roman town, a fort or, fort or a fortress, the fort, the, there's always a civilian settlement. So Vindolanda has a fantastic one. It's a great example. Yeah. That's called a vicus. For a legionary fortress, which is far bigger. So think York, Gloucester, Caerleon, Chester, um, uh, where else? Roxeter, um, they, they they had a specific name because such was the size of the uh, the civilian settlement. They were called Canabay. And I can use York as a great example because I'm, I'm going to guess that you might know York sort of from visits, etc. Yeah, yeah, yeah. or, or, edu- or education. So if you go to York, if you're on the north side of the Ewes where the minster is, that's where the fortress was. Right. So the, the headquarters building for the fortress is three stories below the modern minster. And where the Yorkshire Museum is, that is the south west corner of the Legionary Fort. If you go south of the Ewes over the, any of the bridges, you're in, then in the Canabay civilian settlement. So if you're standing in the railway station or the railway museum, you're standing basically where maybe there was a Roman theatre or something like that. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's what I see. My granddad's family come from York. Oh, um, wow. Amazing. They have Roman surname. So. Do they? Yeah. Yeah, they do, and it's... Uh, yeah. That's brilliant. Yeah. Wow. What are the four hypotheses about why it disappeared? Well, the first thing is to say that there's no direct evidence why it disappeared, which is why it makes it such a good story. It yeah. has been put to me, uh, even, even after writing the book, why did you bother? Uh, what's the point in writing a story because we don't know, have any hard archaeological evidence? So, so to me, that's like a red rag to a bull. There's no reason why you shouldn't follow a detective approach yeah. to come up with at least the hypotheses. Of, oh, brilliant. I'm trying to work out what the evidential trail is. And then at the end of the day, acknowledging there's no hard evidence for any of them, you can actually rank them and come to a conclusion. And then 
if further down the line there's an amazing piece of archaeological evidence, that's amazing. And also, by the way, guys, part of my reason for writing the book is to encourage other people to actually follow their own evidential trails and do their own research as well, because it's such an amazing story. That being said, there are four hypotheses I came up with, each of which I followed in a sort of a detective manner. The first one is that it was lost in the north of Britain. The second, it was lost in the south of Britain, which is a new one. The third, it was lost on the Rhine and Danube. And the fourth, it was lost in the east. So quickly, if I may, I'll go through them and then do come back with any questions. So the first one, lost in the north. Well, this is Theodore Mumpson's idea that it was lost in a rebellion by the Brigantes uh, in York. Or Rosemary Sutcliffe's different approach, but lost in the north, which is that it marched north of Hadrian's Wall to campaign against the native Britons in Scotland and was wiped out. So either of those two, or two together, yeah. uh, that you have a Boudicca revolt scale insurrection where everybody in the far north kicks off. Uh, and then the one legion which is holding the line there, which is the Ninth Legion, gets overwhelmed. We yeah. do know that around the time of the accession of Hadrian in 117, about 4,000 legionary reinforcements from four different legions were rushed to Britain because there was a trouble in the far north. So that supports that theory that it was just they were going to be overwhelmed, they needed the reinforcements, and that's the way it went. And that's a fact, by the way. That's a fact, because that's that's in the written record and in epigraphy. We even know the name of the very senior officer who was put in charge of it. And then, of course, two or three years later, in 122, you have Hadrian arriving with a brand new legion. So if you pull those bits together, you've got Ninth Legion in the north, lost in some way, shape or form. The north is unguarded. Emergency reserves get sent over. The border's stabilised. The, the, the legions perform so badly or, or has been wiped out that it's removed from the official record, which the Romans call a damnatio memoriae, which does happen. Um, and therefore, if you, if you are damnatio memoriae, it's the Senate on behalf of the Empress saying you never existed. That's how brutal an, an act that is. Um, and then the sixth legion, the sixth victory, it's coming back to... Uh, replaced in York. So that's Lost in the North. Lost in the South is a very interesting one. There, there's a new theory which came out a couple of years ago in academic papers about a new theory called the Hadrianic War in London. And this puts together three events between Hadrian's accession in 117 and the later AD 120s, within which, by the way, we have Hadrian coming in the war being built. And we're in London. And this includes what we do have in the archaeological record, hundreds of beheaded skulls in the upper reaches of the Walbrook Valley in London. Now, the Walbrook is a stream, which is obviously paved over now, but it bisects the city of London, and it would have been a very big feature in Roman London. And if you go to the upper reaches where the northern boundary was at the time, you have a lot of tributaries and streams going into the Walbrook. Well, there, hundreds of heads have been found, skulls, which have been beheaded. And some have got trauma on, and uh, it looks as though they've not been washed there from any cemeteries nearby. It looks as though they've been, though they've been mm. deliberately placed there. Um, and the dates are around this period. Okay, one. Yep. Two, you have a, a, a factual event called the Hadrianic Fire in London. So I've mentioned Boudicca torching London. Well, uh, in the early 120s, maybe slightly earlier, around the time of Hadrian's accession, Roman London was burnt again. This one was a, a conflagration of the scale of the Great Fire of London. But intriguingly, from the archaeological evidence, it looks like it was only the fronts of the buildings that were set on fire. So you have there what's effectively a deliberate torching event. 
coincidental with the finding of these skulls. And then finally, in the later 120s, you have the building of a Roman fort, which is the Cripplegate Fort beneath the modern Museum of London. That's really important because the Romans never built forts in their towns and cities. They kept the military totally separate. It's very, very, very unusual. You know, I've talked about the military being other. That's very unusual. So why would they do that? So the theory goes that there was a rebellion in London, which involved... Uh, the, 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 the provincial capital by that time being burned and then either the people who were rebelling or the people who tried to stop them being executed en masse uh, and then later the insurrection being put down and finally a fort being built to put the stamp of rain back on the place. So my theory there that I've examined is what if the schools belong to the Ninth Legion? What if it was the Ninth Legion in London who did the rebelling and then they were later executed, which is why they disappear from history. And then they've just been given a, the, the burials for the Romans were very, very important, you know, because you've got this huge separation between the living and the dead. That's why you've got no burials in the Roman period before Christianity within the sacred town boundary. They're all outside. So why are you chucking people's heads away within the town boundary as though they don't matter, as though it's chattel? So it's a big deal that is an actual fact in this period. Um, the alternative there is if they weren't doing the rebelling, what if the Ninth Legion were there to stop the rebellion and again lost and again were beheaded and then got Memorial Damnatio simply because they performed so badly. So there's another one there. Okay. That's the next one. I quite, that's an interesting one. And, and actually you can do scientific analysis of that. I'm talking to a couple of TV companies about a, a special because if you can access those skulls, you can get them scientifically analyzed to work out where the individuals grew up. If they weren't native Britons, then that's interesting. If there are hundreds of people who aren't native Britons, what are they doing being beheaded? And we do know where the main recruiting grounds were for the Ninth Legion. It was in Spain and North Africa, actually. Remember, North Africa is a very rich part of the Roman Empire. Um, so, so that could be scientifically provable over the longer term or not. I'd be happy for either, to be honest. Yes or no. Uh, Ryan and Danube, um, there is a canard here, a curveball. Because when the Ro- you know, I mentioned the Roman military being engineers. Well, they did, they, they even made their own tiles. When they built a building like the barracks in the legionary fort, they covered them in their own tiles called tegula and imbrex, and they put a stamp on there of their legion saying, we did this. Um, now we have found a hundred or so tiles with a ninth legion stamp in a legionary fortress in the modern Netherlands at Nijmegen which was then uh, part of the frontier defences of Germania Inferior, looking north to what the Romans would have called Barbaricum. Um, and that could tell you that at some stage, and they've been dated pr- between one, 100 and 120, that could tell you that at some stage the Ninth Legion was there. Now, contextually, there's one very important fact here, and that is the way that the Ninth Legion writes its name. Because the way it's on the book and the way it writes, its name normally is 1X, Latin 9. However, some jokers decided they were going to write it V1111. <laughs> and that's how it's styled in Nijmegen. There's only one other place in Britain where any Ninth Legion legionaries write their stamp, put their stamp with V1111. And that is a small fort in Carlisle. So yeah. basically, to the in the northwest, holding the uh, the northern frontier. Yeah. 
Um, and that probably would have had what we call a vexillation. And remember the main homes in York. The vexillation's probably got no more than three or 400 men. So the, the inference there is that at some stage between 100 and 120, three or 400 men got deployed from the Legion to Nijmegen. Why would they go there? Well, at the beginning of the second century AD, the, the great, great, one of the greatest warrior emperors, Trajan, mounts two mighty campaigns to conquer Dacia, Dacia, which is the, the western part of modern Romania, north of the Danube. To do this, he needs huge military forces. So he nicks legions from across the Danube and Rhine. And one of the ones he nicks is the legion which was in Nijmegen, which would leave the frontier defences undermanned. So you've right. seen what happened in Britain when they had to have these emergency reserves. They didn't bring over one legion and leave a gap elsewhere. They took bits of other legions. And that's what happens here. Yeah. So you, you have... Drawing strengths, yeah. So, so you have, exactly. So you have vexillations from four legions at the same time that this V1111 bunch of jokers is in Nijmegen. And it looks as though basically that's exactly what happened. So the Ninth Legion as a whole didn't go there. It's just one unit of it, along with other units from other legions. Um, and then finally, you have lost in the east. Now, it's very, 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 very unusual for the Romans to redeploy a full legion, 5,500 men, very well paid elite, from one end of the empire to the other. Mm-hmm. It does happen, but it's very rare. So what you'd be looking at there is on the east, an event or events which are so dangerous that they really have to do something which is other than normal. Um, and you have uh three potential events there trajan again so trajan after the conquest of dacia conquers uh what we now call the region of modern iraq parthia later the sassanid persia uh and and uh in so doing he's so successful that he winds up all the indigenous peoples now within the parthian empire as it was and along the the banks of the euphrates and the tigris you have these very old hellenistic cities which have got very large jewish populations and they rebel, it begins the Second Jewish Revolt. So you have the Second Jewish Revolt, the Ketos War, which becomes a region-wide Eastern Mediterranean conflagration against Trajan, which he has to bring in emergency reserves to put down, and they do lose a lot of legionaries. You then have the Third Jewish Revolt in the 130s, which is a Masonic revolt, because Simon bar Kokhba claims that he's the new Messiah. So this, this, is, this is like... an incredibly sanguinous revolt which the romans having defeated the um the jewish rebels effectively put the final seal on the jewish diaspora by trying to wipe uh, any evidence of jewish culture out in um in judea including renaming judea palestinia and you can all the implications of that in the world in which we live in today. And then finally, you have the Roman Parthian War, 161 to 165, when Marcus Aurelius and Lucius Verus are again fighting the Parthians. So clearly Trajan didn't do that good a job. And um, we know for a fact that a legion's lost here. So this legion that's lost uh, is unnamed. It's based in Cappadocia, which is eastern Turkey. Mm-hmm. So it's holding the northern bit of the eastern frontier. When the Parthian, Parthian king invades Armenia, which is a Roman client state next to Cappadocia, the governor of the Cappadocia, he's also clearly a bit of a joker because he thinks he can defeat the Parthian, the Parthian king, the Persian king on his own. So he takes one legion, gets just a little bit into Armenia, and they get annihilated, wiped out to a man. 
We don't know the name of the legion, but it's not one of the two legions normally based in Cappadocia because they continue happily for the next 300 years. So there's a, there's a legion which disappears. Okay. Um, so you can see where the evidence trail leads there, but that's a long period of time to go from the last mentioned in epigraphy in 108 right. to 161. Yeah. But it's a possibility. It's, it's, it's a possibility. What, what I like about what, what, what you've done, and, and can consider it a, a, a done deal, I'm going to get the book. But what I like about it is that we hear a lot, historiographers, when they're putting together their arguments, they reach into an archive, they go and find out what they know, and then they, they build conjecture and go, well, this is all the information I've got. That's exa-. But what you've done is actually create the credible narratives that will hopefully then be substantiated over time. So you're looking forward, using what we've got to project four ideas. And I, I love the idea that each and every one of them has substance. And that gives us so much to talk about. And, 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 and also, I mean, when I come to the conclusion at the end, basically, I, I don't come to a conclusion until about the last line. And I, I actually, the, the, the words I use are something along the lines of the reader would think badly of me if having joined me on this detective story over sort of 80,000 words, I didn't tell you what I thought based on what we know today. And then that's when I say what I think, but it's caveated with, we don't know. So it begins with we don't know, ends with we don't know, but the bit in the middle is the really, really good fun for a historian. Like me, I'm a narrative historian, usually writing books about the Roman military. I'm writing a book at the moment called Ancient Greeks at War. Um, and and uh, usually that, that's a narrative approach, but this isn't. This is a real detective story. I'm not going to ask you. Um, I'll make people buy the book. I'm not going to get you to say on air what you think happened. I'm going to ask you as soon as we stop recording. Um, but if you want to know, go and buy the book. Simon, this has been outstanding. Thank you so much. I've, I've loved being with you guys. Brilliant. I'm now going to read the book because, like I said, I've waved it at you. It's been sitting on my shelf. I've been like, no, I want to hear before I start reading. Um, amazing. All, all, all power to your podcast. I think you guys are amazing what you do. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Don't forget that we do exist on Patreon as History Hack, and on Patreon as well, which is Podbean's own version. Uh, Alina and I have had massive fun doing this in 2020, uh, but life's going to change quite a lot next year, and we're going to actually have to go and earn a living, etc. If we want to keep up the regularity that we've been bringing you and the kind of guests that we've been bringing you and the workload, then we will need your help. So uh, if you join... There's going to be incentives for joining on either of those platforms. We're revamping ourselves on both of them. So don't forget to go in. You can do as little as a dollar a month and it all goes towards keeping up History Hack as regular as we've been able to bring it to you this year. When our guests join us to talk about their work in their new book, the 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts. So to this end, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org where you can find our guests' latest and greatest books. You can support them, and you can support History Hack too. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep at it and bring you more amazing guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash hack history, or just search on bookshop.org for us under the shops bit. Thank you for your continued support, and here's to your next great book. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues 
your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. 